0: your Bibles to the book of James. Sorry, Carol, we're doing two different studies at the same time, and so um, we're going to get confused. I gotta. We are working through Psalm 119 and the book of James. But my plan is to be in James for this Sunday and two more Sundays, and then continue the next strophe in Psalm 119. So please open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 1, and I'd like to read verses 19 to 27. It's going to take us three weeks to get through this next section of James, but it is a unit. And so you'll find the notes in the bulletin, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find the text on the back of the bulletin. And so we will read now James chapter 1 verses 19 to 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But... Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed In all his doing, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Lord God, we um, praise you, we thank you that you have birthed us by your word, you have brought us forth. And now, we would have you fashion us into your own image. Your word would continue to bear fruit in our hearts, sown there, that we would be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only, that our faith and our religion would not be self-deception, but genuine, that we might walk in accordance with the perfect law of liberty. Lord, now I pray that you would open our eyes, give us ears to hear, uh, soften our hearts, give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the ways James regularly marks divisions in the book is with that greeting, my brothers or my beloved brothers. We see that in verse 19. But the thought is still synthetic, James likes to end a verse with one word and then use that to pick up his next line of thought. So at the end of verse 18, he taught us of his own will, he brought us forth or birthed us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And he's going to continue that thought that he just brought up the word of truth, scripture, God's word in this next section. In fact, verses 19 to 27 form as a a guide a rule, a test of genuine faith of the new birth. As those who are birthed by the word, we need to continue to receive the word. We need to look in the mirror of the word and apply what we see and not be self-deceived. You notice the idea of self-deception occurring twice in this section. Look at verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. Verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So James is concerned that some in the scattered churches might think they're one thing but in fact be another. Look at verse 26. My mother as a young child, I'd had not have control over my tongue. She made me memorize this in the King James if anyone thinks he is religious And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Not all unbelievers know they're unbelievers. James is warning against self-deception. And he's going to show us who and what we are by how we relate to the word, how we bear fruit in keeping with the word. Now this morning, he's going to lay out the standard of what we need to be. There are two imperative verbs in these three verses. We need to be something. Here's your first blank. What each of us must be. And then your second major point, what each of us must do. There's two verbs. And then my third point, I'm going to try to give some application of what this might look like in our lives. I found this a very convicting set of verses this morning. So let's look at what each of us must be. What each of us must be. Um, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let's look at this in three points. First, the call, the call. He heralds them. Know this. There's something we need to know, something we need to understand. Um, This is similar to Jesus' call. Um, Know this. And so we are to be instructed about something. Um, The assumption here being we may not necessarily already know this. So James greets us, beloved brothers, sisters, and now we need to know something. And what we need to know is it is necessary for us to be something. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So after the call, we have the command He heralds us, we need to pay attention, we need to know something, we need to learn something, we need to believe something, and that which we're to know is what we must be. That's the emphasis of the imperative verb here. We need to be something. And and the logic is, as those birthed by God, we looked at this last time in James, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures god has an intention for how his sons and daughters that he births by his word are to live behave and conduct themselves consequently as those who claim to be born again those who claim to be birthed by god it's we must be a certain way we must live a certain way so the command is to be something now He's going to give us aid in how to do this. The rest of this passage is going to tell us, here's what you need to do as we strive to be who God has called us to be. But it starts with, we've got to know something. And so the first thing we've got to wrap our heads around, this isn't a suggestion or a recommendation. Know this, my beloved brothers, but each one, not, not a corporate command, but individual. No exceptions. No excuses. You no, know, well, that's not my personality type. It is necessary for each one of us, each person, to be three things. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So that's, that's the format. He's got this command. Let's take a look at these three. Now you'll notice that each of these three things we are to be gets treated in what follows. Verse, um, look at the text here. Verse 20 deals with anger. Because James likes to link what he just said. Then, if you look at verses 22 to 25, the issue of hearing is considered. Quick to hear. What type of hearing? Well, he's going to describe it there. And then look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, there's the issue of being slow to speak. A bridled tongue. So, each of these three little you-must-be get treated in the passage that follows. Another way of seeing how this is a unit. So we're going to look at all three of these, but we're going to consider with greatest attention that which James focuses on, which is anger. And I think you'll see there's a progression here. He doesn't pick these three traits, ways of living, conduct, haphazardly. They flow together. So let's consider them First. We need to be, you need to be, I need to be a person who is quick to hear, a person who is quick to hear. I've talked earlier about how James' teaching oftentimes echoes that of his older half-brother Jesus. And Jesus, at least 10 times in the Gospels, cries out, let him who has ears to hear, hear, or some variant of that. Jesus is constantly calling on people to hear him. And the implication is more than simply noise making it to an ear, but to listen, to regard, to receive. In fact, if you look a little further, that's precisely the point James is making. Look at verse 22. But do not, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. So what type of hearing is James calling us to? A hearing that takes in what you hear, that is instructed by what you hear, and then responds in action. In this sense, James is using the word "hear." almost identically to the way the Proverbs do. Proverbs 1.8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 4.10, Hear, my son, and accept my words. The father's not simply saying, listen, but listen, pay attention, and then act. Internalize what I'm saying. So the command, what we must be, are people who are hearing God and hearing his word. Must be quick To be instructed. Quick to let Scripture inform us. Each one must be quick to hear. Quick to hear. Now there's something that's going to get in the way of being quick to hear. You're not going to hear if your mouth's moving. So you need to be slow to speak. So each person must be quick to hear, and each person must be slow to speak. Now, James is going to have a lot to say about the tongue in this letter. Turn over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting in verse 2 all the way to verse 12, we won't read the whole thing, is one extended discourse on the importance of controlling the tongue. James is very concerned about the tongue. And then flowing right out of the tongue, he leads into quarreling, conflict, anger, and jealousy. Right out of verse 12 into verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So we must be quick to hear God and his word. I think primarily quick to receive instruction or correction from scripture. And then we need to be slow to speak. And again, this is echoing the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says this, where words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent Proverbs 17:27 Whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Do you notice how even the proverbs are bringing together these ideas of holding your tongue, keeping quiet and not being angry. That these bleed together. They overlap. I think the implication is we don't want to be quick to hear precisely because we don't like what we're hearing. We got something to say in response. I want to tell you what I think, rising up within me. But it is necessary, we need to know, we need to understand that as God's birthed children by his word, it is necessary that we become, that we be people who are quick to hear, slow to speak, and then slow to anger, slow to anger. Now here, he's simply calling on us to model the character of our God. You remember Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. It's necessary for God's children to look like him in their character. Slow to anger. And again, the Proverbs have much to say about this very topic. Proverbs 14.29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So we must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now it's that last necessary attribute that James then develops. Almost as if he anticipates our challenging it, us having excuses. So we've got the call, the command, now point C, the cause. The cause. He's going to give us a reason why. And as you see these leading into each other, I don't don't want to be corrected. I don't want to be instructed. I don't want to be told what I need to do. Rather, I want to speak. I want to give vent to my spirit. I want to let my anger, my indignation rise. James tells us plainly, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, what's interesting here is that in the Greek... He changes the word. Previously, he used the generic word anthropos. We get anthropology from it. It means man, mankind, and there's no real focus on gender. It's a masculine noun, but it could be used generally. But here, in verse 20, he uses the word on there, man, male, husband, and and it absolutely means male, man. And so commentators consider why is that, or what's his implication? Some think he's just using it to not repeat himself. but that seems odd to me. Um, I would suggest that he's by no means excluding the anger of women, but rather, I think in the culture of his day, certainly in our culture, there can be a temptation for us to view anger as a masculine trait, as a manly trait a good trait. Remember, he's shoring up his reason why, as if he's anticipating pushback. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. I don't know if every culture equates anger and wrath with masculinity, but it started early in the Bible. After the story of Cain and Abel, we get uh, the genealogy of Cain... And his descendants are prodigious and brilliant. We get the workers of bronze, woodwind instruments. The first city gets built. And it culminates with a man named Lamech. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's boasting in his wrath. He's boasting in his fury. He repays his enemies. Even as God promised to avenge Cain, Lamech ups the ante. I will do so 70 times seven more. He apparently thought it was Mighty and masculine of him. He's boasting to his wives. Now, we're to read this to understand the shame and the folly in it. But in many cultures, there can be a false masculinity that assumes this type of wrath. Mess of the bull, you get the horns. I'll take you down. I'll take you out. That's typified by Lamech. Now, in contrast to that, we see in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see Cain's line. And we're not to view Lamech and his song as a good thing. In contrast to that, Adam Knows his wife, the Lord gives him another child, we have a new line. And now people begin to call upon God. In fact, Edmund Clowney, speaking about this passage, writes this The descendants of Cain are recorded, their progress in technology and urbanization is described, but in spite of their unlocking of the potential of God's creation, they remain rebels. Metallurgy, poetry, and music are all developed, but the fruit of this culture is the hymn of Lamech, the song of the sword. Celebrating the threats of the world's first militarist. So it's nothing new for a culture to think wrath, fury, revenge is manly and masculine. And I suggest to you back in James that why James switches to the wrath of man is because he anticipates in some of his readers the same thinking. Surely you don't mean, that. I mean even that. Now I want to make a caveat here. James is not forbidding all anger. Not all, there's your blank, anger. We want to be Christ-like. And Christ made a whip and drove people out of his father's house. James makes it clear, this is the wrath of man. The anger of man. Not godly anger. There is righteous anger and indignation. I I think we probably experience it less than we think we do. But it, but it does exist. And it centers around God and his glory and his goals and his purposes. My anger centers around me and my kingdom and my purposes. And so we, we've got to understand that the wrath of man, the anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not produce... The righteousness of God. Now the temptation is it can produce my results that I want, right? I mean one of the things I've been convicted about in reading this passage and studying it this week is I wouldn't normally have thought of myself as someone given to anger, but you know as I've had to shepherd and, and raise my kids, I find myself more and more realizing that if I put a little sharpness in my voice, I can get them to do what I want. I can get them to leave me alone. It's not righteous anger. It's not pouring out wrath, but they can tell daddy's, in a, daddy's angry, daddy's in a bad mood, and I can get what I want. The anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God, but it can produce a bunch of other things you may want. So this challenges our desires and our goals. And I'm sure you know that there are people in your life, in your workplace, in your family that a little bit of tone in your voice, a little bit of... They'll leave you alone. They'll give you the space you want. No, it can be useful for a bunch of things except the righteousness of God. It, it won't do that. Which, of course, begs the question, what is it we're after? Because if we're after the righteousness of God, James's argument here is powerful. You don't want that. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Now, the danger for us might be, that's fine. It does plenty of other things I want. Right? Yeah, this has been a convicting week. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And Jesus spoke about this as well, Matthew 5, 22. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So we'll talk more about being quick to hear and slow to speak in the, in the coming weeks as James looks at those. But let's just take it together as a, as a package. We are to be, it is necessary, we need to know that we must be, as children of the word, people who are quick to hear God and his word, quick to receive instruction, quick to receive rebuke and correction, and to close our mouths in the attempt and desire to defend ourselves, to justify ourselves, to strike back, we're slow to speak we give thoughts to our words we are slow to anger we don't trust our anger naturally rising up within us and we want to make sure this is righteous anger or this is sinful anger because if it's not righteous anger if it's not anger coming up that's really a reflection of god's spirit it's not going to achieve anything good anything worthwhile that that's that's the argument right that's the standard now, the rest of this passage is about helping us do that, but we need to get that as our goal and understand that's what we're called to be and to do. So, James then draws an inference in verse 21 with therefore. And so your next point, point two, what each of us must do. What each of us must do. Now, again, there's really only one actual imperative here. Uh, there's a participle helping a company explain how that works. But first... James following Paul's pattern or Paul you could argue following James's pattern because I think James wrote first tells us to put off therefore put away it's the same word that we saw in Ephesians 4:22 put off it's the notion of taking off a garment put off like clothes therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness there's a putting off and there's a receiving point b put off and receive There's a not this, but this. Very much the thinking of Paul that we saw in Ephesians. This, not this. Or in this case, not this, this. And whenever we see that, not this, but this, there's an implied relationship of antithesis. The the implied logic is you can't have both at the same time. Right? So put off lying, Ephesians 4, and speak the truth. Because you can't be lying and speaking the truth at the same time. Well, the same logic is implied here as well. Therefore, put away all filthiness and all rampant wickedness, because that would conflict with the next command, to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So, what does he mean here? All filthiness. Now, sticking with the clothing metaphor... It just means filth. I mean, look at chapter two, verse two. Same word shows up. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby or filthy clothing also comes in, and he goes on. And so, if you take the metaphor of moral filth, it's a pretty broad, general term. Our next one's equally broad. The ESV "rampant wickedness," and and the word translated "rampant" can mean overflowing. Abundant. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans five seventeen when he says, "If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the overflowingness of grace." So, so James, I think, has in view the attendant corruptions that come with anger, that come with this fast talking. Again, look over in James chapter three; he makes the same type of logic, right? Remember, James chapter 3 starts out correcting would-be teachers, people who want to talk who probably shouldn't talk. And he begins by warning them about the dangers of the tongue and how difficult it is to control the tongue. And then he goes on and he deals with the fruit of their tongue. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, ooh, that's a word that's in our passage, of wisdom. But... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James sees this type of corrupt, talking, jealous, angry, conflict. It's going to produce all types, every vile practice. I think it's the same logic here. He's not trying to narrow down to any... Whatever it is that's making you morally filthy. Whatever it is that's overflowing out of you that's corrupt and wicked, put it off. Okay? So your blank here is comprehensive or holistic. As we endeavor to be people who are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger... If we're going to achieve that goal, we have to engage in comprehensive moral reform. We can't just pick certain areas we want to focus on. We've got got to cast it all off to make way, the, the implied antithesis, to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So the logic is... This moral corruption, this moral filth, this overflow of wickedness is going to stop you or hinder you or make you not receive. That's, that's the logic, the implanted word. So put off and now receive. And he tells us the manner of how we are to receive. If, if, you, if you, like me, are struck by the difficulty of the charge of what we must be, This is how we can become people like that. But it's our sin and our moral corruption and the overflow of our hearts that's going to stop us from receiving the word. So we need to receive in an appropriate manner with meekness, with meekness. And I think that's in direct contrast with the anger of man. Meekness is not weakness, Meekness means strength under control. We like to show our strength. We we don't like turning the other cheek. Our Lord was meek. Our Lord at one point said, "I I could call a legion of angels. He was crucified not because he was weak, but because he kept his power under control. And he chose to die on our behalf. And he calls on us to pick up our crosses and follow him. We, we need to cultivate meekness. Now, meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. But it's not a trait that we frequently admire or aspire to. We, we need to. This gets back, I think, to that sort of false notion of masculinity that Lamech demonstrates for us. Meekness Strength under control. We need to receive the implanted word. What's he mean by implanted word? The sown word. And he's simply picking up on the metaphor that he made at the end of our last section. Right? Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth, he birthed us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What type of metaphor is first fruits? It's agricultural. It's crops. God birthed us by his word that we could be a kind of firstfruits. Now, this word that birthed us, we're to receive as a sown word. It's to continue bearing fruit. That's the idea. So you're blank here. God birthed us by his word. God's word has already birthed us. He's not, he's not telling them to get saved. He's speaking to people who he's assuming it's true. God brought them forth. So this receiving of the sown word is implying now that it's to continue bearing fruit. We're the first fruits, and that fruit will continue to grow and ripen and mature. God birthed us by his word, and God is saving us by his word. God is saving us by his word. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I know some of you might be sitting there saying, what do you mean able to save? If we're born of God, we are saved. True. But biblically speaking, we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. The Paul can certainly speak in all those categories. Because the salvation that saves, and when we talk about saved in the past tense, we're usually talking about justified, forgiven, forgiven. Well, Philippians 2, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. The same gospel that made us sons and daughters forgiven is the same promise and power of God that conforms us to his image, that grows us, that sanctifies us, that is saving us. And in Paul in Romans 13 can talk about the day of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. There's a, there's a sense in which God taking us to be with him, finishing the job of sanctification, glorifying us, purifying us fully, is salvation. So God's word is instrumental in making us his children. And God's word is instrumental in conforming us to the image of his son. And you see the logic. If we're born, if we're people born of the word, and we need to keep receiving that seed, we know how powerful and fertile that seed is. God used it to birth us. Implication if we keep receiving that sown word, and if we cast off and take off like a filthy garment our sin, it'll bear fruit in our lives. That's, that's the logic of the passage up to this point. So I just want to sort of just stand back and look at the whole passage. James puts out, we need to know something. It is necessary for those who are call themselves sons and daughters of God to comport themselves and behave in a fitting way we need to model our father's character. We need to be slow to anger. We need to be quick to hear our father's word. We need to be slow to speak. He assumes that's going to be challenging for us. We're going to need to keep receiving the word. And if we're going to receive the word, we're going to need to cast off our sinfulness. Now he'll pick up that thought of receiving the word and hearing the word next paragraph. And next week we'll look at that. But what I want to do now, the next 10, 15 minutes or so is try to apply some of this. Um, what you're getting in the next six points are really just my own reflections for myself. Um, if they benefit you, great. I hope they do. But I I think there's a lot we can apply here in this passage. So point three, how each of us must respond, how each of us must respond. And probably the thing that jumped out at me most is how little I admire, how little I, want to become, how little I prize meekness. So here's, here's the first blank. Here's my application. Commit to value meekness and self-control. Commit to value meekness and self-control. And the reason I'm starting here is this. In our hearts, we all want to be different than we are. We all aspire to things. We, we hold up things. We watch things. We cheer on things that we approve of, that delight us. And because God made us as worshipers, we become like what we behold. You worship idols. You become deaf, dumb, blind, unfeeling. You put Christ before you. You become like him. And... This anger of man is subtle because we, I, I will watch movies that the, the whole point, I remember as a kid watching Clint Eastwood movies and Clint Eastwood, don't mess with them, right? Vengeance belongs to Clint Eastwood and a nice piece of hickory. And at least for me in my heart, I thought that was awesome. I thought that was wonderful. And I wasn't delighting in meekness, I was delighting in the wrath of man. So we've got to be careful what we're cheering on in our hearts, what we're applauding, what we're watching, what we're admiring. The person who controls his temper is better than he who takes a city. He who takes a city just makes a better summer blockbuster, right? I mean, the, the movie of the meek man who turned the other cheek isn't going to be that exciting. It should be for God's people. That's what our Lord was like. And so the first challenge for me, application for me is to really question whether I even want to be meek, whether I aspire to be gentle, or whether I actually delight in the wrath of man and the power it can bear. And anger can look very differently. Some people are angry, they blow their top. Some people, you can just put a little edge in your words, slice and dice people, a little sarcasm. Oh, there's all sorts of flavors of this. And I just need to remind myself that it, it does not accomplish anything good, anything godly, this anger of man. i got to commit to value, meekness, and self-control. I mean, I'll read, read the fruit of the Spirit to you in Galatians five twenty two and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We saw in James chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What characterizes fitting teachers, qualified wisdom? Meekness. Not weakness, meekness. I need to value that. I need to check if in my heart I really value something else second point B strive to be teachable and correctable strive to be teachable and correctable I think the internal logic here is we need to let God's word instruct us we need to receive it we need to hear it and we need to take it in and resist the urge to justify to speak to talk listen receive hear Proverbs 10.8 The wise in heart will receive commandments but a babbling fool will come to ruin. And that in the Proverbs is the contrast. People who want to talk and people who want to learn. I've had more than one person ask me once, are you listening or waiting to speak? You know me, I like to talk. And so I need... To, to grow in being slow to speak and, and, and hearing and learning and being teachable and correctable. Proverbs 12.1 Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 17.10 A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. You want to You want to apply this. Ask your husband, ask your wife, ask your parent, ask your friend. How how easy am I to correct? How easy am I to rebuke? Do I defend myself? Do I start talking? Do I listen and take it in? You need to be slow to speak, quick to hear. Point C. Determine to think before speaking. For some of you, this may be less of a challenge. This is the big underlined one for me. Determined to think before speaking. Um, Proverbs 13.3 Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens his wide comes to ruin. Or Proverbs 15.28 The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. I think probably one of the people who I've known who best exemplified this, the the clear, evident wisdom and thoughtfulness, Jeb Brewer. If you guys knew Jeb Brewer, he was not quick to speak, but when he spoke, people listened. Because his wisdom and his thoughtfulness and his self-control is evident. He he was never rash in speaking. Uh, my, My attempt is frequently the sort of the shotgun. I'll just you know, if even 5% of what I say hits, we're doing okay, you know, and, and Jeb was like a sniper rifle. He'd think and he'd ponder and then wisdom would come out. At least that was my experience. So just determined to think before speaking. Proverbs seventeen twenty eight: even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. I think Mark Twain ripped that off, right? Better to have... Men, think you're a fool, and open your mouth and remove all doubt. I think he ripped this off. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So just pause before I speak, before I answer, before I solve the problem, before I defend myself, and consider any number of the numerous things Scripture has to say about what my speech should be like, what my heart should exemplify in my speech. Try not to just rush and speak. To give an answer without hearing is folly and shame. Point D. Stop justifying and excusing your anger. I'm just piggybacking off of the logic of James. James anticipates in this section, we're going to push back. It's the only one of the three what we must be's that he gives an immediate ground for. And he switches the word to man. Man. Male, I think, because he assumes we're saying say, no, no, no. It's not as bad as you're saying, James. And we've got all types of excuses for our anger. The most obvious one is we. Whenever I get angry, I always word it in ways that other people are doing it to me. I don't know if you're like that. They just make me. I'm entirely passive here, just mind my own business, and somebody makes me angry. It's not my fault. Right off the bat, our, our language. Is, is reflective. Or you, you talk about how what you're doing was important. I'm sorry I was getting irritated. It's just I've had a long day. Oh, well, that makes it okay then. I'm sure the righteousness of God's going to get produced now that you've had a long day, right? We, no, stop excusing it. I had to apologize to my kids on the way to church this morning because I didn't want to get struck with lightning being a hypocrite. No, you've got to preach this stuff and you've got to internalize it. And I, I told them, I said, "Kids, I've been using sharpness of my voice to get you to do what I want in an unrighteous way. It doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. But I've learned I can get some space, I can get some quiet. And That's wicked. That's not right. Will you forgive me?" Um, and uh, they they were good and did. So this is this is my list. If if you find things that are helpful here, great for you. So stop justifying yourself. Just when you see it, when the Lord shows it, you shut your mouth. Confess it. Stop explaining all the extenuating circumstances that made it okay. It does not achieve the righteousness of God. Point E. Ruthlessly remove all that stifles your spiritual appetite. I'm getting back to James's broadness, his holistic approach. All the filth, all the overflow of evil. Take it off. Implication. It's gonna stifle your appetite. It's gonna hinder your reception of the word. Keep your finger here. Go to 1 Peter 1. Go to 1 Peter 1. Where the exact same argument and logic is employed. 1 Peter chapter 1. And in 1 Peter 1, look at verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So Peter makes the same point James made in chapter 1, verse 18. God birthed you. You've been born again by the living and abiding word of God. Then he quotes Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, and the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you see it's the exact same argument? God birthed you by his word, so cast off the things that will inhibit your appetite, because you need to keep feeding on it. He uses the metaphor of a newborn babe. Our twins don't eat once a week on Sunday mornings. And if they're hungry, they let you know. Like newborn infants, we are to feed on the word. And again, Peter says, but cast this stuff off that's going to get in the way. So you want to do this? Do an audit of your life and how you spend your time and it's not an audit of wicked and, and righteous. It's simply an audit of things that are getting in the way, things that are unhelpful, things that distract me from the things that matter so I can make time to receive God's Word, to take it in, to receive the implanted Word again and again and again. That's, that's You want to apply this ruthlessly. Remove all that stifles your spiritual appetite. And then finally... We will be doing our closing song, Carol. Be receiving God's word and seek to bear its fruit. Be receiving God's word and seek to bear its fruit. The very next section we're going to look at is going to talk about not just hearing, but doing. But I'll again remind you of James' older brother, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke 8. Perhaps this may even be part of what was in James' mind as he taught this. In Luke 8, Jesus teaches his first parable. It's also the first time in verse 8 he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is calling on people to hear, to listen, to be quick to hear. And it's a similar metaphor of the word of God being like Seed parable of the sower. Luke 8 verse 4. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and it grew up and it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and thorns grew up with it and choked it and Some fell in good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. It's entirely possible James picked up this metaphor and this way of thinking from this. Maybe not. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Okay, so that's not what we're considering. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. What marks all the other bad soils off from the good soil? Good soil, the seed bears mature, good fruit. And James is telling us we need to be receiving the implanted word. We need to be receiving the sown word. You could translate it. Why? So it can bear its fruit. So get rid of all the things that will distract, all the things that will stop you from receiving it, and take it in. So receive, go to God's word again and again, be reading it, And not just reading it, but reading it so that you can fully so we can bear fruit in your life. That's that's where we're looking at next week. Being not just hearers, but effectual doers. That's that's what we're going to need to do if we want to be conformed into the image of what we must be. If we're going to attain to being people who are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, it'll only be because the implanted seed is bearing its fruit again and again in our hearts. So um, I challenge you that we need to not look at ourselves in the mirror and forget what we look like, but to make changes, to make application, to receive and hear God's word. I'm going to call up the worship team now as we sing our closing song, and then you'll be dismissed.